Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking today at verses 9 through 16. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along on a pew Bible, you can do so. um, You can find our passage on page 948. It's also printed in the bulletin on page 8 as well. So we'll be looking at verses 9 through 16. Before we look at those verses, um, we live in an interesting time. We could say that probably for many reasons. Uh, But one of the reasons uh, that it's so fascinating is authenticity, being authentic, is really valued as a way of life. That hasn't always been the case. Sometimes um, corporate conformity uh, has been more important. But you may be aware of the constant encouragement that you often hear to live your truth or you do you. Um, These are really calls to pursue your authentic self rather than just being what everyone else thinks you should be. And uh, as I said, it's something that's very highly valued and is all around us. Now, part of this is really good. Part of this is a, a good impulse. We're not made to be fake as people. Insincerity isn't a virtue, it's a vice. And the call to be authentic really acknowledges the diversity of God's creation. God didn't make us all to be clones who all think the same way, have the same skills, have the same perspectives. And so living authentically at its best is really appreciating the diversity of how God made each of us differently. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. But there is a problem to it, isn't there? Um, Romans 1 reminded us that ever since the fall, every part of us has been corrupted by sin. And so our minds have become distorted, our hearts worship things other than God, our actions are often not oriented to what they should be. And so the problem we find is when we try to live as our authentic selves, it often means that we're living as authentic sinners, doesn't it? And the call to you do you can really be a bit of a scary thing if we think about it because it's really a call to move about in the world as driven by our deepest desires, and those desires are deeply disordered and distorted. But what's amazing about the gospel is that it addresses this problem amazingly. God's mercy not only saves us from our sin, but God's mercy is at work in us every day, transforming us as the people of God into a community of people whose lives are now living sacrifices to God. And what we're going to see today is that God's design for that is not merely external change. God is not interested in making a bunch of robotic rule keepers. That's not what he set out to do through Christ. He's actually all about doing something far deeper transforming us from within in such a way that Christian love and goodness that comes out of us is actually authentic from the heart, Christian love and goodness, not merely external conformity. And so our passage this morning, uh, it's a fascinating passage in that it's a list of 21 commands 
Um, it's like Paul was on Twitter, which I think is now X or something. I'm dating myself with all that. But it's just like he's just tweeting these things about what the Christian life looks like, command after command, glimpse of it after glimpse of it. But as we put them together, there's such a beauty in what he's showing us because it's showing us the depth of the change that God is seeking to work in us as his people. And so I'll, I'll read our passage, Romans 12, 9 to 16, and then we'll pray, and then we'll take a look at what it has to say. Hear God's word from Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help uh, as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we acknowledge that we are far from this list of things that we just read. We pray that you would help us, even in the midst of our failings, even in the midst of the ways these things may not even resonate with us or sound so distant from our experience. Will you help us to hear this with ears of faith? Will you lift our eyes to see this vision of who we were created to be and who you are transforming us to be now by your Spirit? And will you help us to believe that you're doing that today even as we hear your word preached? So we pray that you'd meet us and that by your Spirit you would help us to see the glory of our Lord Jesus and to change us to be more like him today. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to look at these uh, 21 commands topically um, and group them together with some common themes. I, I think that's it's one way to approach it. Uh, and so we're, those will fall under three points. We'll see um, this transformation is characterized by first, genuine love, second, authentic virtue, and then third, heartfelt service. So we'll see genuine love, authentic virtue, and heartfelt service. The first of these characteristics is genuine love. Genuine love. And we see that right there in verse 9 with how he starts this entire section. Let love be genuine. That's a fascinating thing to command, isn't it? Because what it tells us right away is that we're tempted to love in a way that isn't genuine. And what would be the opposite of genuine love? It would be faking it in some way. Insincerity in various ways. It can be easy to just be nice to people without loving them. It can be easy to just keep our distance so we don't have to engage with people instead of loving them. Have you heard Christians say, I don't have to like people, I just have to love them? This was one of my favorite sayings growing up. It got me off the hook of a lot of things. <laughs> Made high school survivable, I think. What is that saying? 
it's saying something that's true. Love involves more than our feelings, right? Um, it, it involves what we do and doing something in the face of it maybe being the hard thing to do. But it falls short in cutting off the emotion to love because love is an action and a feeling, isn't it? Um, God isn't trying to make us into people who just robotically do the right thing toward other people because we know it's what we're supposed to do. He wants us to be so changed that we can authentically love the person who's in front of us. And he fleshes that out uh, of what it means as, as he goes on. And really, we could summarize it in this way. This genuine love, it feels deeply toward one another. Genuine, authentic love feels deeply toward one another. Notice verse 10 there. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. With brotherly affection. He's piling up these affection terms. Family love one another with family love is kind of what he's saying. Now, in a fallen world, we may or may not have a close relationship with our siblings, our brothers and sisters, if we have them. But deep down, I think we know what he's talking about there, don't we? The, the bonds of affection between biological family naturally run deep, don't they? And when we think about our family members, there's typically a sense in which we say, they're my people in some way, right? Well, what Paul is doing is kind of a how much more. The Bible says that that natural response is now a supernatural reality for Christians. We're united together as God's family in Christ. We are now brothers and sisters together. And God, by His Spirit, is supernaturally working in such a way that He's moving us to feel a deep loyalty, a love, a care for one another in the body of Christ. That we look at one another and we say, you are my people because you are Christ's people and we are in Christ together. And so this genuine love has this component of family, brotherly affection, um, but it also goes further to say that we care enough about each other to notice how each other is doing and to be moved by how each other is doing. Look with me at verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, I often encounter that people have questions related to this verse, and usually the questions are related to this. What about my personality or what about my culture? We may find ourselves saying, you know what, Craig, I don't get excited about many things. I actually don't cheer for anything. Or we may say, I don't cry. I haven't done that um, ever in my life. I was taught that it was a bad thing or it's just something that we didn't do as a family. I, I've shared with many of you that this, this verse was life-changing in my own life. We talked about this in our men's group as we met together, this understanding that God wants to work in us in such a way that we, when we encounter someone, we are able to respond in an embodied way to their joy or to their pain. And the beauty of what this verse says is that God can make you into a person who feels how we're supposed to feel 
toward the joys and sufferings of another, regardless of your personality. And I think we could really boil it down to three things, three things that this this verse is calling us to move toward as we grow in this. First, it's calling us to be someone who notices the joy and pain of the people God has put into our lives. Sometimes it's a lot easier to just not notice, right? Sometimes we are so overwhelmed with our own suffering that our notice meter may go down. And that, that's okay for a time. But the orientation of life is, especially among our brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we are noticing what brings joy and what is bringing sorrow. And then secondly, not just that we notice it, but that we move toward it. It doesn't mean we run all the way, necessarily. But it can mean that instead of running away from it, because of whatever reason, we take one step toward what the other person's feeling. So we notice, we move toward, and then third, the Lord can help us be the kind of person who can give, give an appropriate, embodied response to the plight of the person in front of us. Whatever that may look like for you. And the Lord can shape us and our personalities and help them to grow and change. But these are things we can all be praying that God would help us do so more and more with whatever our personality, that we would come to feel deeply toward one another in the body of Christ. But Paul goes on to say that this genuine love isn't just toward those who treat us well. In verse 14, he tells us that genuine love also applies to people who are unloving toward us. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In Paul's day, uh, much like is the case all over the world, there were people making things hard for Christians. There were people who were mocking believers and saying all kinds of evil about their motives and their actions. There were people who were ostracizing other Christians. And if you just held to Christian views, it didn't matter how kind you were about it, uh, you were blacklisted. And people were eventually killing other Christians for the beliefs that they had. And what Paul says here is something that's so revolutionary, and it's straight from the teachings of Jesus, that this love extends to them. This love that we are to have is so deep that it can extend to those who are unloving toward us. And part of what that looks like is seeking to bless the person who is being unloving toward you because you know that cursing is not for you to do. Now, we're going to talk more about this on the other side of Advent when we resume our Roman series because part of the reason we broke up this section of Scripture is Paul fleshes out this how do we respond to enemies much more in verses 17 to 21. And how we deal with those who wrong us takes a lot of wisdom. On the one hand, it's simple. We are called to love in some way. But it's not simplistic. Um, But I wonder if, before we go into all of that, we could just hear what it's asking us to think about today. Is there a way I could legitimately bless the people who persecute me? Wherever that persecution finds itself. It may be at work. 
It may be in school. It may be things that are said on social media. It may be things that are said on the other side of the political aisle. It may be in relationships in our home or our extended family. And what Paul is asking us to do is, is so much deeper than peace faking. He's not asking us to throw out justice. He's not asking us to throw out the call to repentance. But he wants God's work to take hold so deeply in our heart that we can want what's truly best for them. And that we can go before the Lord genuinely asking, is there a way I can bless them? Because I know it's not my place to curse. And so as we zoom out and just consider point one about this this genuine love, we could really summarize it this way. God isn't building a community of haters. (laughs) And he's not building a community of fakers. He wants to transform you, each and every one of us, into someone who can feel and show genuine love to whomever God brings in front of us, even our enemies. Isn't that amazing to think that that's what God wants to do in us? But it isn't just our love that God is seeking to renew. He's also seeking to change our heart toward right and wrong. And that's what we find in our second point. Not only genuine love, but he's changing us to have authentic virtue. Authentic virtue. Paul said back in verse 2 that the renewing of our minds means that we're being changed to more and more be able to test and approve what God's will is. And that means that we're able to see the world in the way God designed it to be and how he would want it to function. That we're able to see now what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect or how it's supposed to be. But verse 9 tells us how deep this really goes. Verse 9 says this, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. He takes it to a different level, doesn't he? He says that this inward renewal involves not only seeing things how God sees them, of what is good and what is evil, but also feeling how God feels about good and evil. To be repulsed by what is evil and to have a genuine inward longing for what is good. That that phrase there, hold fast to what is good, that term is used in Genesis to speak of the husband leaving his family, his father and mother, and clinging to, cleaving to his wife, clinging to her out of delight and out of commitment. It is what he longs for above everything else. And that's what Paul says our orientation is to be toward what is good. And notice, though, that we're not just zapped into feeling this way. These are both commands. Paul wants us to pursue this life of hating what's wrong and leaning into and loving what is good. And so as we think about this this short command, but, but the profundity of what it's really asking us to do, I think it's helpful to consider two things. Two things about this pursuit of authentic virtue, its depth and its complexity. The depth and complexity of pursuing loving what is good and and hating what is evil. 
First, the depth of this virtue. God is at work in us, changing us so deeply that we don't just try not to do bad things and do the good things, but we come to feel the way about evil that God feels. We come to see the harm that evil does and want nothing to do with it, to abhor that in our lives, and that we so love the good that we cling to it above everything else. And the question that raises for us when we think about that level of depth is do we think this way about our sin? I know that I'm not supposed to gossip, right? But do I have to hate every trace of gossip in my heart? Do I have to really kill the desire to feel better by sharing something negative about someone else? Does that really have to die at its core? I mean, if I am to put that to death, then you know what that's doing? It's taking away one of the pet things that I cling to to feel better about in this life. Can't I just keep it at bay and learn how not to overtly gossip? Do I really have to hate my pride? Or can I just learn to not overtly brag about myself? Am I supposed to hate lust? Or just learn how to do it in more subtle and culturally acceptable ways? Do I really have to hate greed? Or can't I just once in a while pull something out of my shopping cart or say, that would be too much? What would it look like for us to actually pray that God would make us hate our sin? I personally find that scary. I find it amazing, but I find it scary. And what would it look like if we asked him to help us really long for what is good, not just be people who have learned to do what's socially acceptable for Christians to do? These are prayers God wants us to pray. This is the depth of virtue he's about cultivating in our lives. And so we, you see the depth of this virtue, but then also when we think about it, we have to see the complexity of this virtue because we live in this age. You know, it's tempting when you hear hate what is evil, cling to what is good, to just think we can hate bad things and we can cling to good things. What's the problem with that? Few things in this life are purely good or purely evil. In this age, we find good and evil intertwined in profound ways. We see this with the stuff of this life, don't we? There are aspects of everything that God created that are good and that are lovely and that we're to celebrate and delight in. And yet every gift that comes from God can be used in evil ways. It can be worshipped rather than received. And God is helping us to love the good things that are in this world and see and abhor what doesn't fit into how it's really meant to be. But this isn't just true with the stuff of this world. It's especially true and especially complicated when it comes to people, isn't it? Every person, whether in here or out there, to varying degrees, is doing things that are both good and evil. 
And what God is inviting us into is the complexity of the proper affections of being able to love every person around us and to see and cling to and draw out what is good in them and to also see and hate what is evil. You see, it's neither blanket of acceptance of every person and it's, neither, it's also not blanket rejection of them. It sounds a lot like something, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like how God actually views and treats us moving toward us in love while still hating and seeking to correct the distortions that lie so deep within. And so God wants us to pursue this authentic virtue where we're hating what is evil and we're loving what is good. And this isn't just theoretical. It then is lived out in all kinds of ways. And, and that's what we see in our third point. He's, he's moving us in genuine love toward people and authentic virtue as we move in this world. And then that flows out into point three, heartfelt service. Heartfelt service. In the remaining verses, Paul lists all kinds of actions that Christians are diligently doing. Christians aren't people who just sit around and wait for Jesus to come. But what's amazing to me about this list is that God's desire isn't that we're just busy serving him in some sort of begrudging service. All of these actions of service that he lays out are flowing out of a renewed mind in a transformed life that is seeing these as opportunities to zealously engage in. And so... I know that it's been a lot, like it's a list of 21 commands, so I don't know how to make it not a lot unless we just leave some out. But there, there are four characteristics in this point, and I'll, I'll move quickly through them, but they help us see what this heartfelt service looks like that God has in mind for us as his community, as we um, care for each other. Fundamental to this whole thing, If you don't hear any other part of point number three, hear this. Fundamental to all of this action is the honor that we show to one another. That's the first thing. We're always showing honor. Christians are characterized by always showing honor. Verse 10 continues, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, That phrase, outdo, I I think we'd be better translating it Uh, translating it, lead one another with respect to honor. Lead the way in seeing other people's dignity and honor. And verse 16 shows the actions of this honoring others mindset. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You see, what Paul is saying is this. Living in harmony and having humble Christian unity isn't because we all think the same way about everything. It's because we think the same about everyone. We see the honor of every person who's made in the image of God and how much more for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see, what that does is it it means that then we're not haughty or proud. We're not 
thinking how much wiser we are than others in our own sight or thinking that our way is always best. Instead, Paul says, we're on the lookout for those who are lowly, those who out there are the ones who are dismissed and despised in our society, and we move toward them in seeking to associate with them to make them our people, to value them and serve them. Always showing honor, a depth of honor that way is what Paul is talking about. Can you imagine how revolutionary this would have been to the church at Rome? Um, When I was reading about how Rome can be described, um, one of the things was it's an honor-based society. And honor is a scarce commodity. And so in Roman society, you would fight for every shred of honor that you could have because there's not enough to go around and it's the only thing that gets you ahead in that world. And in that, Paul says, lead the way among yourselves in honoring others. Think of that for the Christian husband in Rome. Hearing, lead the way in honoring your wife. Lead the way in honoring your children. Think of what it meant for a Christian master, maybe a a female like Lydia. Lead the way in honoring your male and female slaves who are under you, who have no honor in society, who only just suck it away and mean that it would bring it to your detriment if you actually did that to them. And so, At the core, there's this honoring others mindset that Paul is bringing about, and we're looking for ways to honor people. And that brings us to the second um, characteristic, eagerly serving the Lord. We're always showing honor, and we're eagerly serving the Lord. Notice verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rather than being lazy or slothful in serving, Notice what it says, Christians, God is at work in Christians producing a zeal, a fervency. It's an inner burning. It's used to describe water that's boiling over. And it's boiling over for what? Not to serve themselves and to build their own kingdom, but to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord Jesus. That's what God is working in us, an eagerness from the heart, an inner excitement that our whole life can be lived in service that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And it's like what he did while he was here on earth. And verse 12 goes on to show us what God is doing in us even when things are really difficult. You know, we may have times in our life where we know what it's like to eagerly serve and things seem to be going well, but God is also seeking to help us be steady in afflictions. Steady in afflictions. That's our third characteristic here. And we see it in verse 12. He says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Tribulations or afflictions are part of this life for all of us. But God can give us a steadiness in them. Often when we're going through hard times, we think that there's nothing that we can do for the Lord or we think there's nothing he's seeking to do in us. But Paul says here, rather than freaking out or giving up in the midst of hard times, God is working to help us be patient and endure them, steadily going about the things that matter to Jesus as much as we're able until he comes. 
And notice we do so, it says, in hope. Hope is the confidence that we have as Christians that one day God is going to restore it all and make all things right. And having that hope and that future perspective gives us the ground for rejoicing, for finding a semblance of joy in the midst of the sorrow and the difficulty and the trial because we know that it's temporary and one day God will make all things right. And in the midst of all this, there's something that we can diligently do, Paul says. We can be constant. We can be stubbornly consistent about something. And that's prayer. It's taking our cares, our concerns, our laments, and our longings where they need to be. Taking them to God himself. And in the midst of all this, we're still on the lookout for something. And we see this with our fourth fourth characteristic. God is working in us to make us people who are generously meeting needs. And we see this in verse 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There's that honor of others, right? But it's looking out for what needs they have and then using our resources, especially our money, to help our brothers and sisters in the church who find themselves in material need. And that can come from all sorts of reasons. And we do that in our regular giving to the church. You can also give specially to the Benevolence Fund where it goes directly toward believers who have these needs. And you can be aware of those needs in your own lives and meeting those privately. But this is something, contributing to the needs of the saints is something that God is working in us and then also showing hospitality which means that we're not just people who write checks, but we're people who open our homes and our lives to those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in the Lord. In Paul's day, if you were traveling somewhere, you'd need to stay with people. And showing hospitality literally meant giving them a place to stay at night. Those needs sometimes arise in our body, but often our hospitality may be more about providing a place for others to enter into our lives more than it is them needing a place to stay. There's profound loneliness in our world. There's profound disconnection and isolation. And hospitality means opening our doors to bring people in to experience the connectedness of the family that God is making us in Christ. So those are four characteristics that Paul is talking about, about heartfelt service, things that we actually are wanting to do deep down within for one another. Isn't that an amazing picture? I mean, set aside the conviction for a minute. Anyone feeling convicted as you hear that list? I've been in it for a while, so yeah, it's just trying to peel it away a little bit there. But set aside the conviction of it and picture that life. Picture that for yourself, that you would long to do these kind of things. Picture that for our church. I see it at work in in so many ways, but it's something that I want. I want it for me. I want it for you. I want it for us. But but how do we get there? (laughs) You know, we hear a list of 21 things, and it can be so overwhelming and so convicting. And so... I want to close 
by reminding us of two things. <laughs> the simplicity and the wonder of what Paul is saying. You zoom out from a shotgun approach of 21 commands, and we realize that at its core, what Paul is saying is really very simple. Because all that Paul is doing is talking about Jesus. He's laying out in list form what it means to describe the life of our Savior while he walked among us. And as we hear this list, a highlight reel of the Gospels can play through our minds and give us a picture of the wonder of what God is about doing. Think of Jesus' genuine love for everyone he met, compassion for the outcasts and the lowly, going out of his way to touch the unclean, his love for children and sinners and tax collectors. He even lovingly rebuked those who were opposed to him, but in the end he laid down his life for his enemies. And you think of the life of Jesus, and it was a life that was engaged fully with untainted emotion, rejoicing with his disciples, celebrating with them when they came back from casting out demons, laughing and celebrating at a wedding feast, enjoying meals as a friend of tax collectors and sinners in people's homes upon people's homes, and then him there weeping at his friend Lazarus's grave, lamenting over Jerusalem. His whole life from beginning to end was one of authentic virtue. He lived in this same fallen world that we live in with just as many messed up things. And he saw and celebrated the good in God's gifts and in people. And he hated evil so much that he never succumbed to it and he gave his life to bring it to an end. And he shows us from birth to death, a life of heartfelt service to God. He says he zealously went about his father's work each day. And, and we may think of that in all these miraculous ways that we will probably never do, but that also entails all of those mundane things of waking and eating and sleeping and walking and interacting. And he met others' needs through his teaching, through his healing, and even though he didn't have a home to lay his head, he came from glory so he could show us the hospitality of bringing us to his father's house. And in the face of tribulations, afflictions, much like you and I face, we find him repeatedly steadfast in prayer, anchored in the hope of what God was going to do, even through the horrors of the cross. And at the end of the day, when we say, why did he do all of this? The whole reason he came and walked on this earth was to honor us above himself. Isn't that an amazing thing? He came not to be served, but to serve. He left heaven's glories to raise us up with him. He's the only one who ever lived who was truly wise, and yet he wasn't arrogant. He didn't insist on his own way. He humbly lived among people like you and me. You see, at the end of the day, what Paul is calling us to is so simple. 
he's talking about the life of Christ being made manifest in us. And the more that we come to see and know and love him, or as Paul says elsewhere, the more that we behold the glory of Jesus, the more God will make us like him as we're transformed from glory into glory. And that's the simplicity of it. But here's the wonder of it. God, by his mercy, is fully committed to making you like Jesus. In the exact personality and gifting and ability of who he made you to be, he will not stop until one day you experience what it is to fully feel and know and do from the heart what he made you to do. And part of the way he did that was by sending Jesus so he would fully pay for every time you didn't do it. Every tinge of conviction you felt during this sermon, every time you failed to love or hate, (laughs) every time you failed to serve or don't even want to, every bit of laziness, it's forgiven in the cross. It's done by the mercy of God. And that mercy does not stop. God wants us to continue coming back to him again and again for the mercy of saying, will you make me more like Jesus? Will you help me to see the way things he sees them? Will you help me to feel the way he feels about these things? You know, we talked at the beginning about this call to you do you as the really authentic experience. But Christians actually are called into something much more profound. It's Christ in you that comes to be our truly authentic experience of becoming who we were made to be. May God help us pursue that by his grace until Jesus comes and we know the fullness of it. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we so often have such a small view of what it means to be a Christian. We confess that we often lose sight of who Jesus really was in the glory of God honoring humanity walking among us. We pray that you would encourage us, remind us afresh of the forgiveness we have because of your mercy, and help us to come to you even today asking for more grace, for more help to become the people that you are making us to be. And thank you for the hope that we have that one day all the wrongs, both in heaven and earth and in us, will be done away with and made right. And so even so, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.